0: Welcome to the Conservation Today Show. We interview people about our environment in Douglas County, and I am your host, Frances Etherington. Today we are going to do two different interviews.
1: On the second half of our show, we're going to talk about Whistler's Bend Park,
0: which many of you heard is currently being logged. The first half, we are going to speak with Stuart Leibowitz, Stuart is uh, the founding member of the Douglas County Global Warming Coalition. Welcome, Stuart.
2: Thank you, Francis.
0: Stuart, today we're going to talk about uh, global warming and the cap-and-trade bill and Lobby Day. Now, Lobby Day is February 6th for the cap-and-trade bill in Salem. And we are going to have a carpool going up from Roseburg.
2: That is right. It will be both a rally at the uh, state capitol, which will commence at noon. And prior to that, we will be gathering uh, at the uh, Elsinore uh, Theater uh, for lobby training, where we'll ultimately be assigned to meet legislators to lobby for the cap-and-trade bill, known as the Clean Energy Jobs Bill. And we're very excited about the prospects of this year. Uh, We uh, proposed that last year in the short session, and frankly, we did not have time to get it passed. However, as a result of our efforts, uh, we were fortunate to have the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate hold a series of workshops over the fall with a uh, purpose to introduce this legislation in the coming session. And uh, we are holding a rally uh, on that date to uh, send a message to our legislators that this is the time to get this passed. Uh, we, uh, we are extremely hopeful that this will occur. Right now, we have approximately 600 people who have signed up to be at the rally so far. Our goal is 700, and we have uh, 25 members of the Global Warming Coalition who have committed to uh, go uh, thus far so we want to recruit as many people as possible so uh, it is clear that uh, the sense of urgency we all feel about the climate uh, and the message is delivered to the legislators and uh, we uh, we want to continue recruiting uh, people all the way up to the rally
0: what time does the
2: rally start The rally starts at noon, and uh, prior to that we would like to get people to the uh, Elsinore uh, Theater at 10 o'clock for the lobby training. Now, it is not required to be uh, a lobbyist. If you want to carpool with us, we'll be leaving from the uh, library parking lot in Roseburg at 7.15, where carpools are being arranged. Uh, If you want to join us in the carpool, Uh, please give me a call at 541-672-9819. Now, if you want to drive separately, uh, and go to the uh, Elsinore Theater. That address is 170 High Street. And uh, you're certainly welcome to go uh, individually to uh, the lobby training or directly to the rally itself. Uh, At the lobby training, uh, there are specific times that are set for meeting with the legislators, which we will find out at the uh, at the time of arrival, and uh, to induce everybody, there will be a free lunch. Contrary to uh, what economists tell us, there will be a free lunch. <laughs> so uh, we uh, look forward to getting as many people as possible there.
0: So. Now that's um, the lobby training that starts at nine o'clock in the morning is at one seventy High Street.
2: That is correct.
0: And then, uh, um, that goes a couple hours and then we have a free lunch. Yes. And then the rally starts at noon and that is probably at the state capitol.
2: It is indeed.
0: And then what time do we actually go in and start lobbying?
2: It will, uh, most likely, uh, follow the, the rally, which uh, will probably end around 1230. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, individual uh, times will uh, be very much dependent on uh, on the schedule of the uh, legislators, and uh, you know we've got uh, uh, so far twenty eight people assigned to Floyd Prasansky for example, seventeen assigned to Dallas Heard. So it gives you an idea just from our county alone. Uh, although Prasansky also uh, crosses over into Lane. Uh, we've been very good at producing numbers. And the more that we can uh, show the legislators that there's a massive support, the better off we'll be. Now, uh, having said that, uh, even though there are what we call super majorities in both the House and Senate of Democrats, we know for a fact that uh, the uh, fossil fuel industry has been hard at work lobbying to weaken the bill water it down to the point where it would not be effective. And so that's why uh, a uh, massive showing of 700 people or more is really uh, incumbent upon us to uh, make sure that people power outweigh uh, the lobbyists that uh, the uh, fossil fuel industry has lined up. The more people we get, uh, the better our chances are showing the legislators that this is a top priority. Uh, given the urgency of the issue, uh, there are a lot of uh, other bills and other interests, many of them quite valid, but for us, this is a top priority. Uh, our, our state has seen unprecedented wildfires, dis- taking lives, destroying property, impacting our economy, so we are seeing up front the uh, the uh, devastating consequences of climate change already. That uh, this is something that in the past we thought were just mere projections, but now we see that the uh, consequences of climate change are upon us, uh, including our state. Um, there's a quote. Uh, from a uh, climate scientist by the name of Catherine Hayhoe, and she's a co-author of the National Climate Assessment, which was just released uh, uh, last year, and was reviewed by 13 federal agencies, and her quote runs as follows, we are seeing the things we said would be happening, happen now, in real life. As a climate scientist, it's almost surreal. So, When we started uh, as activists in the climate movement, we would often say that uh, uh, we project climate impacts to occur by the end of the century and so forth. But uh, now we're seeing uh, the consequences, the deadly consequences of climate change um, accelerating more so than we envisioned before. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times the other day which uh, indicated that Greenland, which we did not anticipate undergoing ice loss uh, up in, until the end of the century, is now seeing over the last 10 years four times as much ice loss as they had seen uh, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And Greenland is a real marker because that ice, when it melts, uh, will fall directly into the sea and increase the rising seas significantly. So these are the types of, uh, of, uh, of changes that uh, we had projected but are, are now at an accelerated pace. And uh, so that sense of urgency is what we're trying to communicate and, uh, and hopefully... This will uh, register with the uh, state legislature, and uh, they will see this as an important priority uh, this coming session.
0: Well, it's very important for as many people to get up to Salem as possible on February sixth. So, uh, Stuart, give that number again for the carpool call. Yes, uh, it's five
2: four one six seven two nine eight one nine. You know, it's really interesting uh, because uh, the urgency has really been compounded by a whole slew of reports that have come out uh, recently. For example, they have found over the last 10 or 20 years that they underestimated by 40% the ocean temperatures. And people are aware the oceans are acting as, uh, as a carbon sink and uh, the fact that the temperatures are significantly higher than what they thought suggests that the ability of oceans to continue to act in that fashion may be uh, uh, severely uh, uh, overestimated. And so if uh, that is the case, then we're really going to see a dramatic increase in temperatures above and beyond what we've seen before. Uh, the last yes. four years. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry, friends.
0: Yeah, yeah. That that is so, so <laughs> critical that we do something now. So this yeah. cap and trade bill, um, otherwise known as the Clean Energy Jobs Bill, yes. for Oregon to take the lead on this when many other states do not have such climate uh, progress as Oregon does. So we want to. Encourage Oregon to continue on with this. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Clean Energy Jobs Bill does?
2: Yes. Uh, what the the actual draft the bill will be uh, out around February first, but uh, based upon last year's bill, I can outline some of the uh, 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 parameters that we are seeking. First of all, we are wanting to uh, reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. 80% by 2050, and that is consistent with the best science that we have seen. Uh, and we want to reduce uh, uh, these emissions in, uh, with interim benchmarks. In other words, we just don't want to assign 2050 as the benchmark. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we'll wait till 2049 before we do anything. Yeah. So, so, And we have received assurances that there will be interim steps along the way and what we're aiming for is uh, uh, getting uh, a reduction of uh, 45% by 2035. Now, that is uh, an interesting number because uh, a UN report just came out uh, a few months ago saying that uh, the world has to reduce its greenhouse uh, gas emissions 45% by 2030 mm-hmm. in order to avoid the most uh, uh, egregious uh, climate catastrophe uh, uh, imaginable. Now, what we also do is make polluters pay. We've set a price on carbon pollution, and by doing so, that will generate up to seven hundred million dollars. Now, where will that money go?
0: Is that well, per year? Seven hundred uh, million per year?
2: Yeah, that's that's correct. That's mm-hmm. the projection that we had from last year. And uh, so, where will that money go? Well, our priorities will be uh, for uh, impacted communities, investments in rural, tribal, urban, and low income impacted communities. And these are the communities such as ours that uh, are economically hurting and can use these investments. So this really is a clean energy jobs bill. We were also uh, asking that a portion of the revenue dedicated to making low-income households whole. In other words, uh, when um, th- if there is an increase in costs in the transportation sector or in the utility sector, uh, we are seeking dividends or some other method to be uh, returned to low-income households. So that is uh, a goal that we have. We are also want to use that revenue. Uh, to transition to a clean energy economy. And that money will be used in, for renewables and also help those uh, workers who need that transition to, uh, uh, away from a f- fossil fuel industry to clean energy. And so the upshot of the bill is to hold polluters accountable, to put a price on, on this pollution, and then to use the revenue generated to uh, uh, invest in family wage jobs, not just jobs that will pay a pittance, but family wage jobs. We have labor on board that uh, is a strong voice in that area. And uh, so we're very hopeful that the combination of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and investing in our communities will make this bill uh, desirable and a high priority.
0: Yeah, that jobs part is so important for Douglas County, you know, especially a clean energy jobs. If someone in Douglas County wants to put solar panels on their roof, they likely have to hire someone from outside the county to do it. That's right. There is virtually nobody inside the county that can come that does renewable energy uh, for people's homes. Um, so that's a shame that we actually have to call people from Eugene to come down and do this work when people in Douglas County could be making this money instead.
2: That's right. We would love to keep it local. And uh, so this is a, a real opportunity. We in the rural areas have fought hard to make rural communities one of the priorities for investment. And I think there is a recognition by those we are working with that uh, there is a rural component that must be part of the Clean Energy Jobs Bill.
1: We have to take a break. We've been talking with Stuart Lieberwitz from the Douglas County Global Warming Coalition. This is Conservation Today and we'll be right back. We're back with Conservation Today. Stuart Lieberwitz, Douglas County Global Warming Coalition, is talking about the Clean Energy Jobs Bill.
0: I heard Uh, a Republican senator say that it's going to raise our gas prices by $0.16 per gallon.
2: Yes, there was a study. Now, here's what they say, and here's what they don't say. What they do say is that it will raise our our, our, uh, gas prices $0.16. Now, there are two responses to that. first response is if people notice the fluctuations in gas prices, uh, 16 cents is far um, less than what you see uh, just in normal market fluctuations. That's the first response. Second response is California has a model, is, has been acting as a model in this regard, and gas prices have actually gone down since their cap and trade bill. The third response, and the most important response, is that the study said indeed it would go up 16 cents over 10 years. That part they don't quite put out.
0: Well, that's so, normal inflation, isn't it? Yeah, that's basically normal
2: inflation. That's right. Yeah. So it, it is part of the uh, disinformation campaign that uh, is using yeah. scare tactics. Uh, and, you know, one other way of looking at it, and uh, this is part of the National Climate Assessment, when they projected what would happen in the Pacific Northwest, and what they, uh, what they projected was uh, a significant impact from extreme weather events uh, on our health, our infrastructure, our resources, and somehow that economic component is not looked at when you weigh the entire picture. And uh, yeah. in that, in that uh, national climate assessment that they did, they said by the end of the century, our, our GDP uh, will go down 10%, and in just 30 years, our agricultural productivity will drop to 1980 levels.
0: So, you know that, yeah, that's definitely important to have the future financial impacts of, of global warming considered in this equation, for sure.
2: That's right. So it, to, to cherry-pick this information... It does a disservice to the urgency and the uh, powerful impact that that global warming presents.
0: So, I have another question. Yes, I have another question about what the bill would do. Um, as here in Southern Oregon, here in Douglas County, uh, today there was a major ruling on the Jordan Cove uh, proposed pipeline through Douglas County. For the Canadian corporation Pembina to ship Canadian frack gas to Asia using Douglas County for their pipeline, uh, It was interesting that a a judge today ruled that they had not uh, that Douglas County had not given them proper permit. So right now that pipeline is stopped and on hold. But if they appeal this and the pipeline is up and running again as proposed um it it all goes to the export terminal in Coos Bay where it, there's a big huge refinery proposed to be built there that will take the natural gas and liquefy it now an organization called Oil Change International they uh estimated that Jordan Cove's in state greenhouse gas emissions just in Oregon is going to be 2.2 uh, million Metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalents a year. Um, and that's 1.8 million tons from the terminal and 400,000 tons from the pipeline across southern Oregon. Let's say we pass the cap and trade bill and three years down the road after that, Jordan Cove builds his plant. What part will they be uh, required to participate in the cap and trade?
2: That's a great question, and let me add that uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, prior to the Trump administration's uh, takeover, uh, backs those figures up in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, uh, Jordan Cove would be the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the state were to be completed. So this is a very large concern uh, of our Global Warming Coalition, and uh, the uh, climate activists as a whole. And to answer your question directly, any uh, climate pollution that is produced in this state is, would be subject to cap-and-trade. So the, from what you're describing, the overwhelming majority of the uh, pollutants that come from Jordan Cove would be subject to uh, the uh, cap-and-trade bill. Now, there are are some elements that wouldn't, like any other bill uh, governed by interstate commerce, we couldn't touch. But that which is stationary inside the state, that would fall under the cap-and-trade bill. So we're very confident that that the Jordan Cove project would bear the same uh, uh, punitive uh, uh, consequences. Uh, so any other polluter. Mm-hmm.
0: So at 1.8 million tons, just from the terminal, uh, how, how much will they be allowed? And so, and how much then would they have to buy?
2: Well, the way the, the cap and trade works is that uh, any uh, company, unless they are granted free allowances, and we don't want that, uh, any company that produces over 25,000 metric tons would be subject to the cap. And in order to um, uh, escape that cap, they would have to purchase allowances. So that, in essence, is where the cost lies. So the amount of of revenue that's generated from that would probably take place in the rulemaking portion. Uh, But that would apply to everybody, not just uh, Jordan Cove.
0: So the terminal would emit 1.8 million metric tons. And so they would have to pay for everything over, what did you say, 25,000? 25, 25, metric tons, that's huge. I wonder how much yes, it's going it to cost them.
2: Well, that'll be interesting to see. And my hope is when uh, Jordan Cove looks at this, uh, they'll back off. And, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a calculation that they'll make. And plus, you know, the other uh think about is that the cost of these allowances will increase over time because the cap uh, you know uh, lowers each year or every five huh. years or however however they uh, frame it and so it's not just what they pay this year but also projected into the future
0: so, so they're allowed so they're allowed twenty five thousand metric tons the first year and maybe the in five years, it might be 20, and in five years, it might be 15, and they would have to buy the rest.
2: Well, actually, I think it's the cost that would increase, and then the cap, uh, yeah, the cap would go down. So, uh, in, in essence, uh, the amount of money that they would have to pay would increase. So that's my understanding of the bill. But, you know, the fact that they would be a major emitter would uh, cast a pall, I would hope, over their uh, investment decision and and force them to drop the project uh, altogether
0: well what so, parts yeah. what parts of this bill is industry trying to water down
2: what they're trying to water down is uh, basically allowing exemptions across the board for uh, major emitters and under the idea that well gee this will drive uh, industry out of the state, and so we want free allowances to pollute above and beyond the 25,000 metric tons, and that is, you know, completely unacceptable to us. And the uh, the concept is there might be certain industries which would be uh, significantly impacted initially, and they need time to readjust, so they want uh, the right to be, to have their um, requirements waived. So that's the type of watering down that we are concerned about. And that is why, really, when we talk about getting people out to the rally, it's the type of talking points that we want to deliver to the legislature. We don't want an ineffective bill that is pretty on paper, but the reality is it doesn't accomplish what we all recognize what needs to be accomplished. So, uh, you know, everything from from Jordan Cove on down, we want to make sure that this bill covers as many industries as possible and and does the trick.
0: So when they pay their money, as they get over 25,000 metric tons, and they have to pay, they actually pay some money. They don't trade it for things like tree planting.
2: Well, this is an interesting question, and I'm glad you brought that up because one of the major concerns we have are what is known as offsets, and, mm-hmm. and that's, that's, I think, where you're heading, and we really want to minimize those offsets as well because uh, this could create a giant loophole, and so uh, the offset uh, question, the allowance question, both of those uh, offer opportunities to water down the bill and so we're, we're very mindful of the fact that we want to have as strong a bill as possible limit the offsets and probably limit the offsets uh, hopefully to Oregon if we can.
0: I understand one of the largest carbon polluters is actually the timber industry clear cutting kind of emits a huge amount of carbon into the atmosphere but this won't be included into the bill uh, for various reasons. Yeah. And so if tree cutting is not counted as a carbon emitter, I don't see how you could count tree planting as a carbon sequester.
2: Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. Um, yeah, there, there are reasons why we have not approached the uh, the forest issue at this point, um, not the least of which is it's a fairly complex issue, which really needs to be dealt with. Under a separate bill, it's not that we don't want to deal with it, but uh, it it deserves its own bill to address the uh, complexities of uh, of uh, forest uh, of the forest pollution and all that type of stuff.
0: Right, uh, I understand but, that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: But but your your point is well taken, and to the extent that we can lobby hard for as few exemptions and offsets as possible, we will have a strong bill. Our, our motivation, quite clearly, is in line with all climate activists. We want to make sure it does the trick. It doesn't do us any good if we have something that says, yeah, we'll reduce our emissions 80% by 2050. And then you have loopholes that you can drive a polluting truck through.
0: Yeah.
2: And, uh, and it doesn't do what we want it to do. So we've worked awfully hard for several years to get to this point. We're hopeful But we need people to come out and support the very uh, concepts that you have outlined. Namely, let's limit the exemptions, let's limit the loopholes, and get a bill that is meaningful for everybody.
0: And we have to do it soon. Our climate is changing so fast. We really have to get a handle on this. We can't ignore it anymore.
2: I know. Uh, Just as an example, Um, the, uh, statistic, the UN report put out that we had to reduce our, our emissions 45% by 2030 last year. Once, uh, Trump pulled out of the Paris agreement last year, our emissions went up two and a half percent. So we're going in the wrong direction. Yes. Thanks in part to the, uh, federal government. It is really up to the States now to, uh, take the lead. And, uh, and the other part is that if we can take the lead, hopefully we will have a federal government in 2020 that will recognize climate as a top priority, and this can serve as a model that uh, uh, people in the federal government can look at and do something with.
0: Could you please repeat the time of the Salem Lobby Day and how people can join the carpool?
2: Okay, 7.15 in the morning from the uh, parking lot in the library. Call me, 541-672-9819, and we'll get you there.
0: Okay, and that's on February 6th?
2: February 6th, Wednesday, February 6th.
0: And so important for as many people as possible to turn out for this Lobby Day. We have to take a lead on climate action in Oregon.
2: Absolutely.
1: We have been talking with Stuart Lieberwith from the Douglas County Global Warming Coalition. This is Conservation Today, and we're going to take a break. And when we come
0: back, we're going to have a roundtable discussion about the logging in Whistler's Bend Park.
1: We are back from our break. This is Conservation Today. I am your host, Frances Etherington. And for the rest of the hour, we're going to talk about Whistler's Bend County Park. Douglas County recently logged many trees at the park. I am here at the Umpqua Watershed's office with a group of people who are upset at the way this happened. Let's go around the room and introduce ourselves.
3: I'm John Hunter. I am with, uh, I'm president of D.C. Parks, and I'm on the board of directors of the Amquil Watersheds. Kat? I'm uh, Kat Stone. I'm a
4: member of the Douglas County Parks Advisory Resource Committee, and uh,
5: that's the same group John's with. We're government watchdogs. Diana Pace. I'm on the board of Amquil Watersheds. Great, Diana. And so we're talking about
1: Whistler's Bend Park. Now, Whistler's Bend Park is about 12 miles east of Roseburg, it's east of Glide, it is a gorgeous park in a bend of the Umqua River, has a lot of nice forests and shade trees, a lot of nice camping areas, picnic areas, day use areas. This is what the Parks Plan says about Whistler's Bend Park. Uh, it is uh, dedicated as a public park in 1957 and is about 174 acres in size. It is a unique peninsula shape as a result of the horseshoe bend in the Northamco River, that serves as the boundary for much of the park. Now, the amenities include a lot of camping, three yurts there, and a, a gorgeous day use area. The park disc golf. Oh yeah, disc this is golf. A big deal. Yeah, disc golf. The park is one of the nation's top-rated disc golf Whoa. courses. Uh, The course is 27 holes and meanders throughout the park, and annual disc golf tournaments are held at the park. Um, One of the enthusiasts said this is probably one of the top five courses in Oregon, although we've heard it's one of the
4: top courses nationally. It's global. It's actually global. They they talked about having people from all over Europe come to play. And even when um, Rocky or Chris or Tim went out, Uh, to one of the tournaments, they said that they had uh, license plates on the cars from all over the country and Canada.
1: Now, we have since discovered they have taken out hundreds of trees in the park, have cut them down. Now,
5: how did we first hear that logging was happening in the park? Was that you? Yeah, my son went to play disc golf and came home very upset. So I immediately emailed Kat and John. And then you went out and looked.
3: Yes.
5: And what did you see, Captain John? And you went out and looked
4: too. Well, we first the the park was open. There wasn't any anything closed. The road didn't have any barriers, and it just said that the park uh, the campground closed at dusk. We drove down into the park and looked around. We walked up to the campground, and there it was. It was um, log decks. Everywhere, uh, Lots and lots of logs. It certainly wasn't what we heard in the in the Parks Advisory Board meetings where they told us there were only going to be 11 trees removed from that park. was 11 hazard trees. And this was literally over 100 trees.
1: And so then, uh, Diane, you told me. hmm And we went out and looked. hmm And I was shocked at what I saw. I saw, again, uh, the large log decks, trees laying everywhere, a big tree cut down right next to one of the yurts right on the banks Mm -hmm. of the Umpqua River, Yes, and uh, we talked to the logger. His name was Mr. Pence, Pence Logging.
5: He said that, well, why weren't the trees marked?
1: Yeah. Yes. And normally when you go into a logging show, the trees to be cut down are marked in some way. Yes. Either the reserve trees are marked to keep, or the cut trees are marked in blue. A boundary is marked. No markings None. whatsoever. Mr. Pence told us that... He, he was the one who made the decision on which trees to cut. Mm-hmm. Yes.
4: Can you say he'd been logging all of his well, life
5: he said and that. he knew a good tree from a bad tree? Yeah, he did say that. That was his qualification. <laughs> yes,
4: but he's he's had a lot of logging experience because he is the logger that logged Boosenbark Park as well. So even though he's had a lot of experience logging, I'm sure he's a
1: very good logger. But he's not a forester. I'm not sure if he has much experience on uh, park enhancement techniques for logging, how to log in recreational areas, and how to log to enhance wildlife habitat in this area that the public comes to see
5: the wildlife. He really, really cut up the middle of that campground. It's going to be so open and hot there in the middle.
1: Well, one of the things that really shocked me the most is all the soil disturbance. It was the wettest time of year. It had been raining, 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 wet, wet, wet. And they took that big equipment right over the lawn, and there's huge gouges in the lawn. Mm -hmm. Now, normally, like the BLM won't allow wet season logging like that, especially off a gravel road. Uh, And so why did the county think that was okay? I mean, did the county even think about this? Mm -hmm. Issue
4: of the of the mud that was being created. There. I I don't think they they want anybody to think about it as anything except clearing a few trees. They've downplayed how many trees there were. So the the Oregon rules
1: require that before you run any heavy equipment. Um, you're supposed to give the Oregon Department of Forestry a notice. It's called a notice of operations. Oh, yes. And, And everyone has to give this notice. I would have to give this notice if I was going to cut down trees on my land and sell some firewood. You know, everyone has to give this notice. Now, the logger did tell us that it's only for
5: firewood, right? Yes, and if there was anything that maybe could be sold, it might be.
1: Yes, but mostly it was all call. It was going yeah, to oh yeah, yeah,
5: this is no good for going to the mill.
1: No mill. Yeah. So I after I I got we got done.
5: It looked good to us. <laughs> yeah. There are lots of pictures of very good wood. Francis counted tree rings on three trees. Two of them were eighty years old, and one was one fifty. Beautiful stumps. And mostly they were dug firs. We found one incense cedar, a yeah. couple oaks,
1: and. Big, big fat incense cedar that they cut down, a big fat one. After we got done, I went to the Oregon Department of Forestry office and I talked with Keith Waldron, who is the stewardship forester for that area. And I asked Keith if an operation that was strictly for firewood and selling firewood, because that's what I almost still believe, because he told us that, would need a notice of operation. And he said, Well, yes, it does. You need especially if you're going to sell any of that firewood, you need a notice of operation. If anything is going to be for sale, if you're using any heavy equipment, you need a notice of operation. And I checked, and they had not filed a notice of operation with the Oregon Department of Forestry as required. And so I told him about the county logging at Whistler's Bend, and he went out and took a look at it. Now, I am on a system called firms where I can subscribe to an area. And if a notice of operations for logging is submitted for that area, I get an email. And so I was able to see that that evening, a notice of operation did come in. Not long after I had talked to the forester, he probably went out there and came back, and then a notice was submitted. And the notice was, uh, contact person was Rocky Houston, the parks director, And the landowner was John Everett, the forester, Douglas County Lands Department, was the landowner. And it said that they were going to do commercial thinning and selective harvesting, and that they expected to get 21,000 board feet. So that would be about four log truckloads worth of wood they considered they could sell. So when we got that, I I was surprised. It wasn't anything like what the logger told us when we were in there. So then the big question is, why did they not submit a notice until we inquired about it, until we reported them to the Oregon Department of Forestry?
3: Incompetency.
5: Yeah. Well, Rocky says he didn't know he had to.
3: Well, that's what he says. Uh, deny, deny, deny. Yeah. Uh, in, in, incompetency, uh, they think they could get away with it? I mean, you would think after Busenbark that they would be a little bit more aware and maybe a little bit more concerned, but... Uh,
1: now, Busenbark was a county park right. west of Roseburg, gorgeous, mature, old-growth tree county park. What happened to it?
3: Uh, they uh, Well, they in 2015, they cut the entire park. Uh, Twenty... Twenty-three acres hauled off over about a million board uh, board uh, feet of lumber on, yeah. uh, on there. So, so,
1: the, so they had clear cut one of our beloved right, county parks, right. Bozenbark, and so you'd think they'd be more careful about logging in other county parks because the 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 citizens really gave them hell over that mm-hmm. Bozenbark Park.
4: When Bosenbark Park was logged, nobody was really watching or or knew the extent of the parks system. Busenbark was the first park in Douglas County, and still was used by a lot of people. It was very precious to many people who had weddings there. They held go-kart races, on Sunday school picnics and parties, uh, veterans' ashes scattered there. It was really a part of the community, but nobody knew they had to watch. And the commissioners continue to say, well, nobody spoke up to say anything before we logged it. Well, now there are people watching, people like DC Park, and um, if they had brought this up, that they were going to log, there certainly would have been people speaking
3: up, and they wanted to do it. Well, well, the frustrating thing to me is we've been going to the, I've gone to every Park Advisory Board a meeting since Busen Park was logged, We go and we suffer through the meetings just because we're determined that we're not going to have this happen again. And yet, despite the fact that we've been to those meetings, they they still pulled this off. And they pulled it off by lying and, and deceiving because they said they were going to cut 11 trees. We believed them.
1: And they further hid the logging at Whistler's Bend by not filing the notice of operation, which was legally required. One of the reasons why it's important to provide a notice to the Oregon Department of Forestry when they're going to be logging, because the Oregon Department of Forestry has a database they get from the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife of, of what sensitive species are out there and what to be careful for. I knew that there was an osprey nest in the area because in 2015 they took out some hazard trees in the park, provided the correct notice, and that notice came back and said, well, there's an osprey nest, be careful, right? So they knew in 2015 to put in a notice, far less volume, but they somehow forgot they had to do it now in 2018. And what about that osprey nest? Well, just about five days after they put in their notice, there was another uh, permit that came through from ODF to the county uh, that said, by the way, there's an osprey nest there. Uh, they are known to make multiple nests, so you better be careful and look to make sure
4: there's not any nest. It's really important for them to do a survey before they go out and start cutting. But Mr. Pence is a logger. He's not a wildlife
1: biologist, exactly. no. and so he, did, he likely did not look up in the trees to see what was up
5: nope. there before he cut nope. the trees down. And regarding the osprey, Keith also said that they need to submit a written plan about that, about protecting that site. And they did.
1: Okay. They did submit a written plan, and that came through in the next announcements. So I'm getting all these because I'm okay. subscribed to this yes. area. Okay. They submitted the written plan, and I believe he had a map. Of eight trees. Mm-hmm. yep. Right, that was the written plan. And that's when they said we put the red ribbons around trees that were within 100 feet of the river because they were supposed to uh, talk about the trees close to the river as well as the osprey nest. They didn't really talk about the osprey nest. They just talked about these eight trees, two of which has been cut down. And we saw other trees near the river not included in the written plan. Well, we saw one right next to the yurt that was cut down. Yes, that was within a hundred feet of the northham corridor. Yes, definitely. And that was not on this written plan. They didn't admit. And when I went out there next, that tree had been
4: yarded and decked. Has lived, has has the stump been ground? Because he was wildly, madly grinding stumps the last day we were out there. And can you imagine Rocky himself, the director of the parks department, is out there sitting
1: on a machine grinding stumps. Yep. I thought he was supposed to be in the office doing paperwork, and there's a worker supposed to be grinding pumps. What is Rocky doing? Sitting on a machine grinding stumps himself. In any case, that Osprey nest could have been impacted before they got the warning from the Oregon Department of Forestry because they never filed their initial notice of operation. And when they finally did, they were required to do a 15-day waiting
5: period, and they didn't do that either. Does ODF have any... Can they fine them? Yes. What are the consequences? What are the consequences? consequences?
1: Well, uh, we did submit comments on co-watersheds and and myself,
4: and we ask for the normal penalties to be applied. My problem with the penalties is if, it, if there's a, a financial penalty, it doesn't cost the county anything. It costs the taxpayers. And I really feel like there should be personal penalties. It, it shouldn't be the taxpayers having to pay. Rocky should have to go to a seven-day workshop.
3: He should resign.
4: Well, he should resign. But that's probably not going to happen. But there should be personal consequences. The commissioners should maybe have to attend a class because they're supposed to know what their department heads are doing. Isn't that what they're supposed to be doing? And instead now they're passing the buck. No, they're not doing their job, right. basically.
1: And how can they say they don't know how to do their job? I don't. I didn't know I had to provide a notice, Is Rocky's excuse. I mean... That right there, when John Everett is your forester, and why are they going to do a big logging operation, at least four log truck loads, their Forester is not involved. Well, their Forester was involved, his name was on the Notice of Operations. And I'll tell you something else. That Notice of Operations said that they had to wait 15 days. It did, and they didn't stop. And they should have stopped logging right then and waited the 15 days from January 14th. And at that commissioner's meeting, I said, are you going to wait those 15 days? And they said to me, no, we don't really have to do that. Why, under the order from the Oregon Department of Forestry to have a waiting day of 15 days, they don't comply with that. They were out there continuing to fell trees the very next day. That's what they should be penalized for, violating that 15-day waiting period, not providing the notice of operations for, for and and uh, and cutting down trees in the area of the North Umpqua River and the Osprey before
4: doing a written plan.
5: So why didn't ODF
4: shut them down? Why did they let them go along their merry way? Well, according to Rocky, he says it's only the 11 trees on the riverbank right that are affected by that 15-day stay. He said that all the logging in the campground was not expected to stop. And I don't understand that it doesn't say that on the paperwork. Yeah, the notice, the first notice, they did not talk about the
1: osprey. They just said, wait 15 days. Yeah. They did not talk about a written plan. They just said, wait 15 days. And then they got their act together to say, well, it's near the river, there's an osprey nest, and let's get more information from you. But meanwhile, they're discontinuing to log through that whole process illegally. Well, one of the consequences would be for them to do it right next time. Next time, they have to give the public notice. Oh, there's hazard trees that might fall on a picnic table. We're going to cut them down. Give the public notice. Mark the trees before you start logging. Those trees should have been marked. Mm-hmm. The loggers should not have decided which trees no, cut down. Never. And and the public should have been notified that, oh, you know, we've marked a hundred trees out there, once you, you know, and we could go out and take a look and we could provide comments and input. You know, the public often has good ideas. The more minds the merrier. Why shut the public out of the whole process of a
4: public park management? Exactly. The other thing is, uh, Kenite Park also has Um, In in these uh, Parks Advisory Board minutes and presentations that we have, they also listed three other parks, I believe, and K'Night Park is one of them, and it also has hazard trees. Now,
1: hazard trees, we have seen many Douglas fir trees get thin crowns due to the drought in the Douglas County area. I've seen that a lot. and So I believe that there were some hazard trees out there at, uh, at Whistler's Bend Park. But cutting these trees without public notice, how do we know what they cut? You know, was Mm -hmm. was really that many trees dead and dying? There's other options besides cutting a tree down and Mm -hmm. putting it on a log truck if it's a hazard tree. You could top the tree and reduce the hazard. Top it so it can't hit a target. Once you top it, it's less likely to fall over. It'll more likely melt and provide bountiful cavity nests and woodpecker habitat and platforms for raptors to thrill the park users. You know, you don't have to cut the tree down and put it on a log truck. There are lots of other options if a tree is dead and dying. Now, some, maybe, if there's many of them, but so many trees and mm-hmm. unmarked, unnotified, with a logger deciding which
4: one, and for the trees only to be cut down for no other options to be considered. Well, to listen to the Board of Commissioners today, you have to be terrified that every tree is gonna fall on you. The only good tree is a down tree that's <laughs> down by a logger's saw. That was infuriating. How many people have died in Douglas County in 25 years that weren't carrying a chainsaw? How many people have died in Douglas County from having a tree fall on them? Another problem with this logging all the trees is when you thin a stand of trees, that reduces the amount of protection of the trees that are left standing. They are more subject to the pressure of the wind and to come down. And the other issue is, how can we track the money?
1: you know, all public agencies should be open and above board so the public can easily track money going through their hands. we That's the way to prevent corruption and to keep a clean government. Here, there was no public notice. The public never got to look at the trees. None of the trees were marked. The logger decided which ones to cut them down, and they never put in a public notification. And so how are we ever going to know... How? What their cruises are? They going to tell us what their final cruise is? How many they did put in a log truck? How much money they made? How can we track that?
4: Is public it pro- record? Request. Yes. Request, yes. and it has to be done on the proper form. You can't just submit it. By it, costs and it costs money too. Yes. Yeah.
3: So they could make if they do as badly on this timber sale as they say they are. They could make more money on their request for public information than they do on the log <laughs> sale. Because everybody will be asking for these scaling results. So another thing that's come to my mind is why doesn't the county have in their parks budget some money set aside for hazardous tree removal? If it's such a problem, Mm -hmm. they should have some money in their budget and have money to hire a consultant to look at these trees and and make the proper evaluation. If they really cared about trees, they would want to keep... As many of those trees as they can, even if they was cutting cutting out the top of them, because that is what that park is all about—is those trees, and that's why the people go there. But they do not approach it like that.
1: I found it interesting at the Parks Board meeting, which was the day after the commissioners' meeting, when we had some young diff- disc golf players get up and speak, and they were highly disappointed at the condition of the park. And they complained deeply about the mud and the ruts, logging during the wet season, and running right over that grass with the heavy machinery.
3: About the condition and state of the park. But she was, she was, she, she was upset. She, was, she definitely felt that that they had pretty much destroyed that part of the park for disc golfing. And uh, I think overall, the disc golf
4: people are heartbroken but they are trying really hard to be civil. They don't want to take the chance that they're going to lose their baskets and lose their playing area. That in effect, the, um, it's only one basket area that was affected by this, but if they put in an RV park where it is, it's kind of in the wrong place for a disc golf course. Okay, what else uh, should we talk about? What have we forgotten to say?
5: I liked your comment um, that you made when we were walking the park about the um, invasive species. The scotch broom? Yeah, particularly the scotch broom, and that uh, perhaps a county should be investing in cleaning that up. And we had talked a little bit about maybe um, doing a volunteer group to do that.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, the noxious weeds, the uh, invasive species are really uh, can, can be a big problem in the park. Um, they can be a big problem in our wildlands, yeah, and and in Worcesters Bend Park, this Scotch broom was hanging near the river, and so the seeds could easily blow into the river, and spread themselves. And so it would be great to uh, get that cleaned up for sure.
5: I feel really concerned that. The, the commissioners and the, and the parks department, you know, being rocky, they, are, they just are not open to any point of view that's not in alignment with how they see things. And we've tried to communicate with them for so long. Um, we just have to keep, you know, getting our point heard and making them realize that we are, well relevant and that a lot of people feel the way we do about conservation and restoration.
1: You mean the public is relevant in public lands?
5: Yes, and that we, as conservation people, are relevant. You can't just keep shrugging us off and pretending we aren't there because we don't have the same point of view. They have to realize this is a world view now.
3: The other thing we talked about the PAB meeting last week, that they just go, they're, you know, they're just going along with it. The and
5: parks? you think they had the facts that PA board knew? Do they parks? know about Whistler's Bend? Do you think they have the facts? I, I don't know that they care.
1: Oh. I'm sorry to say, I think we're out of time. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming and talking with us. This is your host, Francis Etherington. We'll see you in two weeks again for Conservation Today.